Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. Today, I'm joined with journalist Liam Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Rowley from the Schwanka Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Southern County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from the Times Union. It's been a busy month, so let's get straight to it. Let's start with Liam. Liam Mayo from the River Reporter. Access to government. I've seen some chatter online on Facebook, really, from the town supervisor of Bethel discussing about now there is there's now access, online access, to government documents in Bethel. What can you tell us? Yeah. Um, so the conversation about access to government in Bethel really kicked off with a petition that various community groups gathered to bring to the town board at, and they brought it to the town board at a meeting on March 8th. Uh, this petition ended up having like 1,200 signatures dotted thereabouts. And it was asking for a couple of different uh, items of improved access to town government. It was asking for, like you mentioned, the documents to be put online for major development projects like the White Lake Mansion project. It was asking for more staffing in the building and grounds department, sorry, the just the building department to address issues of access to help the department be a little more open to the public and also to help the department take sort of a harder look at development projects as they came in. And it also asked for zoning board and planning board meetings to be broadcast online rather than just having them meet in person. The town board of Bethel was already doing a lot of these things. The town board zooms its meetings. The town board, to my knowledge, is very good at putting all of its documents online. Uh, so this petition was more asking for that same sort of openness to extend to the planning and the zoning boards. And again, like you mentioned, in the weeks since that meeting, there has been motion on a lot of these things. There, Daniel Sturm announced that the um, that the documents related to the White Lake Mansion project have been put online in on the town's website, and that all planning board and zoning board projects will follow uh, in the future. And it's less clear at the moment what exactly is happening with uh, the other requests, with staffing in the building department and with planning and zoning board meetings being broadcast online. But I think we're hearing that there's maybe progress in those areas as well. The pandemic has really increased the the access to a lot of town board meetings. I, you know, a lot of meetings had to go online, had to use Zoom to broadcast the meetings because no one no one was allowed in some of the town halls. And some of the some of the boards have kept that up and even expanded. I know a couple of them who have, like you mentioned, uh, uh, have expanded their video capabilities. Some have really uh, fleshed out their agendas, adding hyperlinks to projects and and letting people know. Uh, where they can find the records and make everything transparent. Uh, so like I said, it, it's great that this technology is here. And, so you, and you mentioned you're reporting that some of the residents are saying that we have the technology, so why not use it? Do you know in this effort to be transparent whether the Bethel board is also looking to increase the capabilities, increase video, increase uh, audio, make it better than they have it now? I haven't heard of anything specifically as of yet, but we'll definitely follow that as it keeps on going. Like you said, I think the pandemic has pushed a lot of towns more in this direction um, to adopting uh, Zoom meetings for their meetings and um, prompting them to invest in that kind of equipment. And it's sort of raised the bar of what people consider for access to government. 
um, a little bit of the pushback that people have been saying in Bethel has been, well, the town's open, the town's transparent. And if you want to know what's going on, you can call up a board member or you can go attend a meeting in person like you always could. Um, but I think what people are saying is, well, in this post-pandemic world, now that we have the tools to make everything accessible online, especially in an area where there are a lot of second homeowners who aren't necessarily physically in this area 24-7, now that we have the opportunity to do more stuff online, it really behooves the town to do that. Absolutely. And moving on, Liam, you have another story about uh, rail safety, railroad safety. This is, has been in the news because of what happened in Ohio, the derailment. We recently had the the founder of one of the founders of Casco Mountain Keeper, uh, Wes Gillingham, who has a petition going out to sort of stop the transport of liquid natural gas through parts. I'm not sure parts of Hudson Valley but mostly through the Pennsylvania corridor. Uh, there's a, uh, a company that's looking to transport from Pennsylvania all the way to the city for transport. And he's trying to uh, stop this transport from happening because of liquid natural gas is very dangerous. Now you have a report here of what's going through our area, through the Hudson Valley areas or the Cascos area. This is reported by Ted Waddell. Can you tell us what he has found so far? A reporter, Ted Waddell, has been doing a fairly extensive series of articles talking about um, the rails and uh, concerns with what is being carried over them. And some of what we're finding, I, I don't think we have anything specifically about uh, the project you just mentioned, but um, we've been trying to find out what's been going currently on the rails and what processes are in place for if there is an emergency. So. We've gotten in touch with, or Ted Waddell got in touch with someone from the New York, Susquehanna and Western Railway, which operates trains on the line. And that person told him that the line does not currently transport materials defined as poison, inflation hazards, toxin, inflation hazards, or crude oil in the River Valley. There's no major point of concern that we have found as of yet. However, it is hard to get the consists or the... Um, lists of what are going there on specific trains, partially for security reasons, partially just for privacy reasons. So it can be hard to know exactly what is going on these trains, not only for the general public wanting to be informed, but also for emergency responders who are trying to respond to potential incidents. We've also been looking at something called the Emergency Resource Guide. That, that was a document first drafted in 1997 by the Upper Delaware Council in collaboration with partners like the Delaware Riverkeeper Network and National Park Service. And it collects emergency numbers and railroad maps for the river corridor in an attempt to sort of give emergency responders a, a, a chain of communication in the event of an emergency, like uh, who needs to get contacted, where, when events happen. Things have changed a little bit since 1997. Um, I was not born in 1997, so uh, it's, it's been a while. And uh, there was a derailment near the town of Deposit in 2018 that kind of highlighted that. Uh, there were 4,000 gallons of diesel fuel that leaked into the river uh, from that derailment. And um, there were certain issues with communication 
during that derailment in which, as far as we understand it, the National Park Service was not properly notified. Um, and they're one of the key figures in this area who needs to respond to emergencies like this. So that prompted the Upper Delaware Council to request an update to the Emergency Resource Guide. It's taken a few years to get off the ground. They had to request it again in 2020. And um, there were a few COVID-related delays, but that's something that is currently being revised and the National Park Service and other partners are looking to do a simulated training incident um, for a derailment. So it's something that people are looking into, like how to improve the chain of communication and how to just make sure that the area is ready to respond to emergencies that may happen. Absolutely. It's a good thing to that they're doing that, to be uh, proactive and find out and discover problems ahead of time and who goes what and who does what during a major disaster like that. Thank you so much, Liam, from, for that report. Liam Mayo from The River Reporter. Moving on to the managing editor of the Hudson Valley Times Union. Philip, welcome back to the program. You have a story about the state Senate and assembly budgets compared to the governor's proposed budget. It's budget season. It's crunch time. We're getting near to a deadline that all this stuff has to be in. What can you tell us about these proposed budgets? Yeah, so, you know, we're talking late March. That's crunch time for uh, New York State agreeing to an executive budget, which will be due on April 1st, the start of the fiscal year. Sort of brief background, um, Governor Kathy Hochul released her budget proposal back in early February, $227 billion. The kind of main initiatives are she wants to double the growth of New York's housing over the next decade, largely by um, increasing the density of housing, particularly in suburban and rural areas, uh, such as the Hudson Valley and Catskills. Uh, she wants to invest a billion dollars in mental health services and address uh, crime rates through sort of two measures, investing in community-based services and making further changes to bail laws. So the governor's proposal is kind of one marker of what the final budget might look like. The second is the is what's called the one house proposals that come out of the state Senate and Assembly. Uh, those are usually released following legislative budget hearings, and those came out last week. And basically, by sort of comparing what the Assembly and Senate are prioritizing and what's in the governor's proposal, you can kind of see where there's where there's similarities and where there are differences. And there are quite a few sort of noteworthy differences. Um, I can hit some of the top ones here. I think the main one is that both one house budgets reject the governor's plan to mandate new housing in the suburbs and further upstate. Um, and instead, they provide $500 million in incentives to sort of encourage new development. So more of a carrot than a stick there. The other, another big one is that both the Senate and Assembly budget proposals remove Hochul's tweaks to the bail laws. Um, that sort of the long and short of that is that they would give judges more discretion about setting bail, which is kind of an incremental change that's happened to the bail reform laws since they were first rolled out a few years ago. There's also they also have some differences on education in schools. The Senate budget removes her proposal that would allow city and state universities to hike tuition, while the Assembly proposal gives CUNY, the CUNY system down in the city, more aid um, to try to stem off a tuition hike down there. They also, both legislative budgets, do not include the governor's pitch 
for more charter schools to open by removing uh, a regional charter school cap. And then there's a couple of like sort of tax and wage differences as well. The Democrats in both chambers, uh, the Assembly and the Senate, uh, um, want to raise taxes on wealthy New Yorkers. So they would they would do a half a percent hike for filers between five million and twenty five million and uh, a further half a percent for anyone making over 25 million. Hochul has said she she doesn't support that and it's not in her budget. Everybody is on the same page about raising the cigarette tax by $1, but the uh, assembly does not include the, a ban on flavored tobacco, which has become kind of a priority uh, for, for the governor. And then there's, there's also differences in a minimum wage hike. So Governor Kathy Hochul, has proposed a minimum wage hike, but it caps the increase to 3% or growth in the year-over-year consumer price index for the Northeast, which is basically a, a proxy or a marker for inflation. The What the Senate wants to do is raise the minimum wage up to $21.25 an hour in New York City and Long Island and $20 an hour uh, in the rest of the state by 2026. And then it would index any subsequent wage increases to inflation so that it basically it's written into law that the minimum wage would keep going up with inflation, whereas, whereas Governor Kathy Hochul is not like making that link so strong. So those are kind of the main differences. It's, you know, we're going to figure out a lot more next week. I wouldn't expect that this gets done any time sooner than April 1st. Next week, uh, the the state legislature is in session for all five days, so they will be quite busy. Absolutely. Like I said, it's crunch time. It's getting to the time of the year where all this has to be in. You have another story in the Hudson Valley Times Union that was done by Lena Bellamy, a reporter for you, about a story about the FBI and the state controller's office looking into Wall Kill's finances. What is this all about? Yeah, so this is an interesting story that Lena has been working on for for quite a while. So it had been previously reported that the state controller's office was conducting an audit of the town of Wallkill's finances. They're specifically looking at the town's procurement practices, uh, its payroll, and its overall financial management. There's been a lot of turnover there in recent years. The, um, the town controller left last summer shortly before this audit began. And the town supervisor, Frank Tendanto, former town supervisor, he kind of ran on a crusade to figure out what was going on with the town of Wallkill's finances. And he made that kind of his main priority and issue while he was in office, um, such that he was uh, he faced a lawsuit um, for creating a hostile workplace environment because he couldn't get the information that he wanted. And then he lost in his reelection campaign in 2020 to the guy who's the current town supervisor, George Serrano. What hadn't been reported previously and, and which Lana was able to confirm is that the FBI um, is also looking into the financial practices of Wallkill. And um, according to our reporting, they began asking questions of town officials even before the state controller's office began its audits, which were in last August. We have um, we have one source in the story, Frank Dandanto, the former town supervisor, saying that he was interviewed um, a handful of times by phone and in person with FBI agents 
we're continuing to report out the story because we, we are fairly certain that there are other people who were also interviewed by the FBI. It's worth noting that the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies will routinely work with the state controller's office on financial cases that involve government entities, such as the town of Walkills government. So their involvement here isn't like unprecedented or anything, but clearly, um, you know, they it's it's a, it's a sign that that um you know something is kind of up with what's happening with in in the finances there so as of now there's been no criminal activity either alleged or um or or nobody's facing criminal charges and so it's not yet clear to us whether this is some kind of conspiracy or who's benefiting from this or if it's just sort of sloppy accounting and bookkeeping you know the fact that the controller's office has been doing this audit for about nine months now, and state auditors are routinely in the town of Walk Hills offices, and the fact that the FBI got involved suggests that there's, uh, you know, at minimum a lot to kind of go through and untangle. So we're continuing to report that story. Um, we'll probably have a follow-up or follow-ups um, as as we're able to confirm more information. But certainly, um, certainly, sort of spicy if accounting can be spicy. <laughs> no, that definitely is spicy. I mean, you have the FBI and the state controller's office looking into what's happening into the finances of a town. You know, that's a pretty serious thing. So, thank you so much, Philip, for that news. Let's turn our attention to the Sullivan County Democrat. We have managing editor. Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat. Joseph, welcome back to the program. It seems that Sullivan County was very popular with the U.S. Senators. One week we had U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer in Monticello, and then the following week we had Kristen Gillibrand also in Monticello. Joe, why were they here? It's not too frequently that uh, our U.S. Senators uh, grace Sullivan County with their presence, but they have quite a big territory to cover. The uh, Chuck Schumer was here. Uh, we had a reporter. The listeners might list, uh, know this person, Patricio Obayo, who was at the press conference uh, over uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, pretty much Sullivan County has been trying for a few years to get a high intensity drug trafficking area designation. I think we're like the only county in the Hudson Valley that doesn't have that designation, which kind of baffles people because we have the highest uh, opioid overdose rate per capita outside of New York City. Uh, so Chuck Schumer was here last year asking for the same thing. Supposedly at the press conference, it was reported that it didn't uh, go through because of like technical difficulties or something last year. So it just is really weird. And so he was present because getting this designation would open us up to having a whole bunch more resources and stuff that other counties have to kind of address this issue. Um, you know, I know that's it's been a big thing the county is trying to tackle. You know, we have a uh, opioid settlement funds that continue to come in from all these lawsuits that we that the county's been using on various initiatives. So to have this designation would be another tool that law enforcement and, and local uh, officials could use. And and so that's why uh Chuck was here. Um uh, and uh, he was very adamant that uh you know he wouldn't you know tolerate or whatnot that it not going through again. So you know fingers crossed that Sullivan County will get this designation. It's just you know there's a lot of things it seems like in the world you could point to that just are really ironic. And this is just another one of those things that, that this county doesn't have that designation. So but that's why he was here. As far as uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, she was here a week later. I was at that press conference. Uh, she stopped by the VA clinic in Monticello. She's sort of been going on this tour recently. Uh, she had introduced among with a bicameral, which is a new word I learned, 
a group of individuals uh, a few years ago introduced the PACT Act. Uh, it's a really long name for the PACT Act, but I, I couldn't remember it if I tried. Uh, but pretty much what it does is uh, for years, uh, Vietnam vets who have been exposed to Agent Orange, more recently with the uh, Gulf War, Iraq War, Afghanistan War, and people being exposed to burn pits and other toxins, uh, they'd have to jump through so many hoops and, uh, to try to get coverage at the VA or other places. You know, it was kind of on them to uh, find out or prove, you know, I was exposed to these toxins or whatnot. Whereas this kind of presumptively uh, makes a presumption that they were exposed and they can get the treatment that they need. And so she had a press conference here. She was joined by uh, Molinaro, who is a uh, representative for New York 19 in Congress, uh, and uh, uh, Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther and a lot of different people. Uh, kind of talking about what the PACT Act does, what it covers. They got a lot of questions from veterans who were present. And uh, she pretty much told them, like, listen, if you're denied in the past, apply again. And if you're not, you know, it's not going to be tolerated. And she told them to call her office. So, um, you know, if, if they have an issue. So she's really much trying to get veterans coverage on those uh, things. I talked to uh, Stephen Walsh, who's the director of the Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency. And he said since uh, this PACT Act went into effect, uh, their office has uh, quadrupled in the number of, of claims and stuff coming in from people, a lot more traffic. One unintended effect of it, which they said is really good, is for a long time there was this disconnect with recent veterans and younger veterans and the older ones. So the older ones are, would kind of always be um, you know, Vietnam-era vets and before that had been utilizing the VA and the, and the uh, Veteran Service Agency locally for services but this kind of brought the younger veterans maybe the ones who were exposed to the burn pits in the more recent wars into the office and so in addition to getting them their help with this issue it's also kind of showing them what other resources the office offers them and um and he said so far they've submitted 150 claims in regard to the pact act and they've all been uh, you know taken care of fairly and so they said they were very thankful for the awareness that that raised so so that's what brought the uh, two U.S. senators to uh, to Sullivan County on back-to-back -back Fridays. And, um, yeah, so that's um, pretty different topics, but important ones. Yeah, definitely different topics, but definitely is important. Going back on the Chuck Schumer, like, it's, like he said, even he said, it, was, it baffles the mind that Sullivan County is not designated as a high-traffic area for drugs when we have the most opioid deaths outside of New York City per capita. Uh, so hopefully this does happen and we get the, the much-needed resources. Another story that the Democrat has been working on is zoning. There's some changes to the Liberty Zoning. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, I don't know if this is as exciting a topic as some of the other things we talked on. You know, I know Chris, you know, in his Ellenville coverage, I'm sure he loves the topic of zoning. But, uh, you know, what I, as far as what's happening uh, here in Liberty, the more I've been involved in covering towns and stuff and villages and that type of stuff, you'd be surprised how far behind zoning and different things can be because with all these state laws and changes, towns have, are constantly, a lot of them now are looking at redoing their zoning to try to, to get up par with it. With Liberty, they had really no parameters in their town code for um, houses of worship or schools. Uh, there's certain places they, I guess, allow it and some they don't, which in theory, I guess, to my understanding, you're not technically supposed to do. You're kind of supposed to have this in your code, like specific parameters for that. And because it didn't exist, the town is kind of looking into it and, and just kind of working on updating their code. So it's up to poor with state and federal law. And um, so 
you know, a lot of the conversations around schools and houses of worship was like, where do you allow them? Do you want, is it better to put them in a service commercial zone? Like, uh, you know, downtown area, for example, if you're thinking about Liberty, I know downtown's a, you know, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but you have a main street, you have different businesses, you already have the infrastructure in place, which, you know, water, sewer and stuff, which works out well for schools uh, and houses of worship. But the problem is, is that you're also going to limit some of your commercial businesses, because if you're a restaurant establishment, per se, and you want to serve beer or like wine and uh, liquor, uh, and beyond just beer and wine, you can't sell liquor within a certain distance from a church or a school or whatnot. So because of that, you know, the town's looking at maybe service commercial isn't the best place to have it. And there's talk about residential, right? And then that's a little more secluded areas. But then it's like, well, does that have the uh, the right sort of systems in place to support it? So then there's a talk of an overlay district, which would be something, you know, in between. So that's what Liberty's kind of looking at, what kind of parameters they should establish for it. And they're they're trying to they're really making an effort board to be as transparent as possible through this. Uh, they're going to have an information session on April 17th, at 7 p.m., which is their regular town board meeting at Town Hall in Liberty. I'm uh, not in Town Hall, sorry, in this Liberty Senior Center, which is next uh, in the same building as Park and Rec next to Pole Park. And uh, they're going to kind of just have an info session where they talk to the public about what are the proposed changes, what um, sort of the state and federal law is that dictates to them what they should be doing in this process. And, um, you know, kind of just going through the whole process with the public. Then they're going to have another public hearing at a later date, probably sometime in May, I would think, um, that uh, would allow the public to come and just kind of speak on the matter and provide their input. And then the plan is to tentatively vote on changes to the code by June. So they have a whole sort of tentative process uh, mapped out. And, um, you know, a big thing in the discussion was in addition to establishing the parameters to also establish all the special uses, because, um, you know, obviously whatever the town board decides in the code, is what the planning board and stuff is going to have to go by, you know, in the future and other boards. So, so it's a delicate process and, and uh, they're going through it. So, like I said, probably not as exciting a topic to some as, as some of the other things we discussed, but in Liberty, it's an important thing for their code to, to update it on these matters and, you know, schools and houses of worship are two important things. You know? I mean, they are. Zoning is very important because it affects us all. And now we have this, this increased growth in the county. So I see a lot of towns and villages are updating their their laws, their codes, because to not only prepare for the growth that we have now, but prepare for the growth in the future. Yeah, and a lot of time the public, you know, puts their anger and frustration upon the planning board for, you know, approving a project and whatnot, when in theory, they're really just have to just make a decision based on the parameters that are set for them. So it's really not, you know, their fault you know it's usually they're pointing i think at the wrong board at that point it's really you know they just have to follow what's in the code so absolutely thank you so much joe for that reporting from the sullivan county democrat moving on to the schwankuk journal we have none other than chris raleigh from the schwankuk journal letting us know about what's going on in elville and also county chris we talked about transparency in government we talk about investigations into government and we talk about zoning laws in government now we're going to talk about a water district what can you tell us about the world war Singh water district well the world war Singh water district is a small water district uh encompassing a section of uh, the town along route 209 outside past napanok 
uh, passing on the way up towards Kohongson, just a couple of hundred uh, people involved, really. However, the, the issue there was that this is being paid for entirely by New York City, the DEP. Uh, and there aren't very many projects in our region that managed to bring 20 million plus out of New York City or something like this. I mean, this is this is an amazing amount of money. Um, and also, it's it, it means that the people in that water district have an enormous advantage over all the other water districts in that they are starting off with no debt. Every other water district has to pay for itself one way or the other, and they tend to bond it or whatever, and you, uh, you start off with a base payment paying off that debt. The other thing is that in a remarkable burst of generosity, uh, New York City is also offering to hook people up for nothing. There's free, a free hookup. Now, in any other water district, it costs somewhere between seven and $10,000 to get hooked up. Uh, so this is a, a terrific uh, advantage. Um, however, there are still some people, for whatever reasons, who haven't uh, done that and haven't sort of applied. And they need to get moving because the... Uh, uh, the deadline for getting their paperwork in is April the 14th this year. And if they don't do it, then they're out. And if they ever want to get hooked up to it, they'll have to pay and it won't be cheap. So that's sort of like the, I think that's an important thing for everyone to be considering. And also to, you know, just carry in our minds that New York City, because of its problem with the aqueduct and the tunnel and the leakage there, is prepared to put $20 million into the town of Warsing. Now, let's be clear, for, this, for New York City, $20 million is a rounding error. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a budget that deals in billions, you know. So, but uh, for the town of Warsing, um, it's huge, you know, and also it will um, take out a problem that might uh, turn up when they do cut off the aqueduct, which will be this year. And that will stop, apparently, this one million gallon a day leak that they've always told us about uh, that's going into the ground there. And then what happens then? Nobody knows. Uh, you know, you take out that million gallons a day, the ground will dry out. Will it begin to shrink? I mean, nobody is really aware what's going to happen. But at least the people along that stretch of Route 209 will get water. So that's part of it. Also, uh, other signs of that uh, water district coming together, because it has to be finished by June the 30th at its completion date. Uh, the big tank up on the hill above the highway garage uh, is going to be filled soon. The electricity is going into that. And then they'll fill it up with water. Um, I can't remember how many thousands of gallons, but it's it's several swimming pools, put it that way, uh, sitting up there. And the uh, Stephen F. Bradley uh, pump station is uh, just about complete. Uh, and if you're driving by on Route 209 and you glance down Institution Road towards uh, Eastern Correctional, the prison, uh, you will see this uh, slightly ominous looking gray building. It's not that large, but it, it's like a house with no windows. And you might wonder, what is that? That is the Stephen F. Bradley uh, pump station. And um, I'm told by uh, a, a town board person, uh, uh, Cassie Spoor, that they're looking at signage and they want to brighten it up a little bit with some signs. So that's that's what's happening there. June the 30th, 
that's going to be completed. And then later this year, uh, the, uh, the New York City uh, water aqueduct will be cut uh, for repairs, which may take, nobody really knows how long, nobody really knows what the state of the thing is. They have put a robot down that thing, and uh, it seemed to report there was a gash or a break in, in, in the pipe. Uh, pipe, it's not really the right word, the, the, the aqueduct. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, then we'll have to see how long that takes to fix. And then it go back to normal. But meanwhile, the, that stretch of the town of Warsaw will have a new water district. So that's one story. Um, the other story I have today is uh, there is now going to be a permissive referendum, uh, I believe, uh, it has been applied for anyway, uh, by um, uh, taxpayers uh, in the town of Orsing uh, regarding the uh, <coughs> the financing of the new town highway garage. Now, all of our municipalities all have to grapple with the cost of maintaining a highway garage. It's not cheap. It's essential. You've got to put you know, a lot of expensive trucks and other equipment indoors. You don't really want them sitting out underneath the elements. Um, so the town finally bit the bullet on that, and they bonded last summer for $9 million for it. Uh, it will be uh, quite a magnificently large thing, 200 by 80 uh, feet uh, on a concrete pad across the site from the current one. And then the current one will be refurbished, which means there will be new roof, new skin, uh, new structural supports as well, because some of those have rusted out. And the current one is a wreck. I mean, if you've been inside it, uh, you will know uh, that the ceiling leaks uh, badly, that there's often standing water on the floor, and uh, there's holes in the skin all over the place. So that's that story. However, permissive referendum uh, has now been, um, the petition for permissive referendum has now been uh, filed with the town. The town will now be considering what to do next. They have, I think, I think it's 60 days to, to get it up and get it running. Uh, and and to have that referendum, and uh, then we'll see whether the uh, the taxpayers of the town of Warsing are prepared to uh, go along and add another two million. Because this this permissive referendum is not about the nine million that's already done. This is about the two million uh, that was added on because inflation had already made the uh, the nine million possibly moot in terms of dealing with all the costs, which now look like they'll be a little bit over ten. So they also want to leave a little bit of a cushion because inflation may continue, blah, blah. But anyway, so that permissive referendum on the extra $2 million, uh, is something that probably will happen this summer. However, caveat, the town will be looking at its legal uh, uh, liability to, and its response to this. And so um, we can't say that it's absolutely certain that it will happen, but by law it should. So that's, that's where we've got to leave that one. Now, I was reading an article recently about the aqueduct and was talking about a major leak that was in the aqueduct by Ruto 9, uh, a worsening about that was which, which was causing flooding because there's so much groundwater coming in. Is this the same crack and that's that's been ongoing for decades? Yeah, that's 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 the probably the prime reason why uh, New York City DEP got into this. Uh, they, they is that they've had a lot. This leak has been running forever, like years, decades, and uh, the people living along that stretch of the road were complaining of uh, mold in their basements and all kinds of other issues that way. 
um, about 40 houses actually were taken down uh, and removed. They sold out. Uh, the city bought them and demolished them uh, because they they had this ongoing problem. And then I guess they considered the uh, the future and further problems with all of this and decided to uh, give everybody uh, a, a water district along that area and sort of buy them off, make sure there isn't going to be some class action lawsuit or something. Uh, because sometimes those things have enormous numbers attached. So, you know, I, I imagine it was a sensible decision. And um, 2000, you know, they have been talking about this particular task of opening uh, up or getting down into that aqueduct to repair it for uh, at least 20 years, uh, but certainly more and more and more in the last 10. And so now it's happening. Uh, and this is just a small side of it. The the major work is over there by Newburgh, where the aqueduct goes underneath the Hudson. Uh, and they actually had to, they had an even bigger leak there, and they had to cut a secondary tunnel uh, to put the water through there, while so they can close off the uh, the the one underneath the, the Hudson and do serious repairs in there, M much more serious than the repairs to the, the one in Warsing. So there it is. All that water going into the ground. Yeah, now the, now it's going to stop. And then what happens? <laughs> I know. It's just a story that will carry on for us. Yeah. I just uh, add one thing to what Liam was saying about the train safety. Because uh, I, I, we went over this a couple little way, way, way back, you and I. Uh, the one thing to remember there is Jen Metzger, uh, county executive in Ulster, has, has put in a strong request that she or her administration be notified of what is on trains that are coming through Ulster County. And there are about 200 a week, and some of them are carrying who knows what, because they, they don't tell anybody. And, and she wants to know, you know, I mean, and I think we all want to know, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially what happened in, in Ohio with the tragic uh, train derailment there. Uh, we don't want anything like that to happen here. So thank you so much to everyone here in the Reporters Roundtable. This has been the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. Today, we'll join with Leah Mayo from The River Reporter, Chris Riley from The Schwankock Journal, Joseph Abraham from The Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from The Times Union. Just a small production note, this was Joseph Abraham's last Reporters Roundtable as he's moving on to new opportunities. I just want to say publicly, thank you so much, Joseph, for being part of the Reporters Roundtable, being part of the local edition for... Really, for the past two years, uh, we had this programming on. And thank you so much for your reporting throughout the county for the past six, seven years that you have been there. Uh, I think you have been doing some great reporting. You have always been instrumental in the radio here. Uh, you've been doing radio here for us in Radio Catskill. You've been doing radio for Thunder 102. Thank you so much for all you have done for this county. And thank you for me personally. You've been very instrumental in my career here in the Southern Catskills, so I'm forever indebted to you for that. Thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you so much for your wisdom. And most importantly, thank you so much for your friendship. You've been listening to the Reporters Roundtable. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again next month.